Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. We have responsibility for promoting the release of government data and making the way government works more transparent. So reads the Cabinet Office's own website. It may come as a surprise, therefore, that its divisions include the infamous Clearinghouse Unit, which some have accused of working actively to ensure as little data as possible, or that the Cabinet Office has refused to publish documents explaining the unit's remit and work, or that it was ordered to do so by a judge who added, the profound lack of transparency about the operation of the Cabinet Office might appear from the material before this tribunal to extend to ministers. My guest today is the perfectly transparent font of all wisdom when it comes to government transparency, a former BBC journalist in politics and current affairs. He has devoted much of his recent career to studying the government's obligations under the Freedom of Information Act, documenting compliance or lack of it, and even training other journalists on the use of its power. Welcome, Martin Rosenbaum. Thanks very much. It's great to be in the bunker with you. (laughs) Martin, I was in the civil service from 2000 when the Freedom of Information Act went on the statute books to 2005 when the final of its phases, which I think was the general right of access to public information, came into force. And I remember that we were trained to within an inch of our lives that the spirit of the act was a presumption of disclosure unless, and that unless was very narrowly defined. Why has there been such a slide back from those noble aspirations of transparency, which I can vouch were real? Absolutely. I think they were real. And I was a journalist at the time the act came into force in 2005, as you say, and I was putting in FOI requests uh, right from the very beginning. And I think there was at the time that the act came in, indeed, uh, a a culture of increasing openness, a commitment to it, a certain degree of enthusiasm about it, uh, and uh, certainly rhetoric as well that went along with all of that. And I think that's right. Uh, But I think uh, experience uh, changes people, doesn't it? And (laughs) partly, I think there's also maybe in some ways partly (laughs) could be the success of uh, freedom of information in that, Mm. um, I mean, the point of freedom of information is to force the government and other public authorities to release information that they otherwise wouldn't release. That's the point Mm. of it. Mm. If it's biting, if it's having an impact, if it's making a difference, people who are on the receiving end of that are going to find it annoying or even worse. So uh, it's not surprising in a way. And this kind of phenomenon, sometimes called executive pushback, uh, we've seen in the UK of some pushing back against FOI. It's also happened in you know some other countries, Ireland, Australia, India, for example, that have got quite strong and powerful FOI acts. So it's not a unique phenomenon to us. Mm. It's, it's just that it feels a little bit like we've gone from the presumption to de- disclose unless to a presumption almost to not disclose unless? Well, I think absolutely the culture in numerous public authorities is if you're not sure about it, don't disclose because (laughs) you could get into trouble, there could be bad headlines. Uh, Neither of those things actually are valid legal exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act. It doesn't say you don't have to release this if it's going to cause you bad headlines. But nevertheless, there is a in the way that people operate on a day-to-day basis, uh, that caution is um, sort of built into the system. And 
there aren't the incentives from the other side really operating effectively in order to build up the pattern of power on the other side to to counteract that. And mm, that, mm. that's certainly a, a practical problem. So has it been a, 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 what you describe as a smooth downward trend or is this this government a particularly sort of egregious culprit? Has there been a sharp drop? So I think there's been a general trend, but I think we've also seen an acceleration in that trend. Uh, The trend really, you know, did begin under Tony Blair. I mean, he introduced the Freedom of Information Act, but he later said uh, he was a complete idiot for doing so. Um, David Cameron described it as one of the buggeration factors that fur up the workings of government. So he wasn't that keen on it either. Uh, But now I think we've moved to the stage where, in terms of central government, there's no enthusiasm for it at all, really, um, even in rhetorical terms. Uh, And the Information Commissioner's Office, which is meant to enforce it, uh, does so more weakly than it did, in my view, a few years ago. Uh, and as well as that, we've we're also we've also got a current government, I think, which compared, say, to the situation under Theresa May, where it's much more centralised. The cabinet office has much more authority over mm. other government departments, and that also makes it possible for a tightness of restriction at the centre to constrain other departments more than was the case certainly at some times in the past. Yeah, I, I interviewed several journalists from the FT Collections team responsible for so much uh, great investigative journalism recently. Absolutely. And all complained that it has never been so bad. One of them said one request that had no reply other than a holding letter in almost a year. Uh, this week, George Grillis of The Times uh, complained that one of his requests not only wasn't handled blind, as it's meant to be, but that other departments were copied in a response identifying him as the applicant. So is there a, a general breakdown of the processes that go on around FOI requests as well? So here you're really talking about the workings of the clearinghouse, the section within the Cabinet Office, which uh, can coordinate the responses of other government departments. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's become a more powerful unit uh, than it was at some times in the past. But it's very important not to say it's not new. I mean, throughout the time FOI has been enforced, there has been a, a, a unit within the centre which has coordinated other government departments. Mm. But I think it's exercising a tighter control over uh, what other de- departments are doing. And it certainly imposes considerable delay into the process, which is obviously a particular problem for journalists. So your request might go to a department, uh, business department, whatever it is. They refer it on to the cabinet office clearinghouse for guidance. They check how other departments got the same request and so mm. on. And it slows the whole process down. You, you know, it's a kind of can be a kind of form of obstruction, effectively, yeah. in a practical way, without saying uh, a deliberate policy, a named policy of obstruction. And the same, again, under Michael Gove in Cabinet Office, you have sort of peripheral um, bits like the blacklisting unit, which I understand blacklists people who make too many FOI requests. And you have the other thing Michael Gove set up, which is called, I think, the rapid rebuttal unit, um, which uh, uh, sort of responds to stories in the press that 
thinks uh, uh, are unfair, does all of it add up to a quite anti-press culture at the Cabinet Office? I don't think it's necessarily an anti-press culture. I think it's a culture in which they want to make sure that their points get across and they counter points that disagree with them. But I think what we've also got to recognise, Alex, is that some of the criticisms that are made actually also go too far. And you referred to the what you know the, the blacklisting unit. I've heard this term is used quite often to mm. criticise the cabinet office. I don't think there's any evidence at all that individual journalists who make lots of requests that they find annoying are being blacklisted and their requests aren't being answered. That would be blatantly illegal. And I don't think there's any evidence of that whatsoever, although that allegation is chucked around from time to time. Mm. What I think does happen is that requests are dealt with uh, more slowly, they're delayed, they're dealt with more obstructively, they're dealt with with a regard to whatever the headlines might be that might result from them and so on. But that's not the same as saying that people are blacklisted as such. But but they're certainly uh, not treated blind either. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no, no. And there is, generally speaking, under FOI, it shouldn't make any difference who you are as a requester. It shouldn't make any difference why you're requesting the information. The legislation is applicant blind, uh, purpose blind, as it said, in Mm. general. And we do see that process not being complied with. That's absolutely right. But I don't think, but I'm also don't want to, you know, go along with people who are making excessive criticism. I understand that completely. But at the same time, you know, the government has, I mean, we know it's, uh, it boycotts programs that, that it thinks uh, go at it too hard. Uh, as far as I know, Channel 4 still can't get a government minister to appear for love nor money. And, you know, such programmes even included the Today programme at one point. Absolutely. I, and in the long distance so past, I did work. Have a, they definitely have a naughty or nice list. It may not be a black list. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but you're dead right. So they, and uh, a long time ago, I worked on the Today programme, but and they, there was a time they were refusing to work, to appear on the Today programme. But the difference between FOI and that is there's no law saying you've got to appear on the Today programme. There's no law saying you've got to appear on Channel 4 News. Mm. There is a law saying you've got to respond to FOI requests. And even though they might like to uh, blacklist certain journalists, say, um, the law doesn't allow them to do that as such. Mm. And that's one of the strengths of FOI is that it can force governments and public authorities to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. That's the point of it, in a way. Yes. I mean, I come from a legal background, and every lawyer will tell you that, uh, you know, the the effective way for the other side not to see a piece of evidence is not to refuse to give it, but to give so much evidence <laughs> and, and say, find the one page you're looking for. It seems to me there's a very effective strategy for government in that, that, that would render them completely transparent and still you know, make it a a big problem for people snooping around. But No, no, um, but I mean, absolutely. But I, I, you know, sometimes you need to get big disclosures. I remember years ago, a huge pile of paper arriving in the office, uh, which was uh, from the DWP, literally 1,500 sheets (laughs) of information. Um, And um, I did ask a researcher to look through it, and the researcher did find in the middle this pile of paper 
uh, a, a genuine news story. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was only one in the 1500 sheets, but it was there and we found it. <laughs> do, do you think that, um, the, I mean, the way the government is operating at the moment, I find quite damning in a weird way in that the notion that the less information you make available, the less trouble you get in, has built in it the implication that there's a, there's a lot you can get in trouble for. Uh, yes, uh, and I think also it, it, they're worried about getting in trouble for things uh, much wider than what they would actually get in trouble for. And there is a there's a culture of caution. And if you put out something and it causes bad headlines uh, and you maybe you might not have put that out, you get in trouble for it. Mm. But if you put out information and nothing, you know, there isn't any trouble for it, nobody says to you in the cabinet office, oh, well done, Alex, or whoever <laughs> it is. You know, we got that information out. It was all fine. Uh, no, uh, the public is better informed. That's good. We mm. didn't have any bad headlines. Nobody praises anybody. For the release of information, so yes, the, the incentives are very one-sided. It, it's interesting going back to uh, describing the training we were having at the civil service just before the the full powers of the act came in. We actually did have built into our assessment procedure positive uh, sort of praise for. Uh, honouring FOI requests. That's obviously not the case any longer. Um, is, do you think at the root of the problem is the fact that the Information Commissioner's Office has no teeth? I mean, it can effectively be ignored and has, and, and it has very few remedies, especially against government. I don't think it's so much that it's got no teeth. I think it's rather that it's um, concentrating, concentrating on taking bites out of the wrong things, really, at the moment. Or you know, mm. it's looking, it's looking for its lunch elsewhere. And I think a problem for the Information Commissioner's Office is it is so obsessed now by its other responsibility, which is data protection, yeah. from which it gets ninety percent of its budget that the freedom of information side of its work has really dropped down the list of priorities. And it doesn't take effective enforcement action against the Cabinet Office or other government departments that have a consistently bad record of handling FOI requests. Uh, and there are so many decisions from the ICO where they've criticised the Cabinet Office for delays and obstruction and so on and so forth. But there's no; it never takes it further in terms of so for what it could do issue an enforcement notice requiring the cabinet mm. office to improve its processes in future um and i think it's dropped the the sort of ball really in terms of how it handles freedom of information enforcement because it's really dropped down the agenda as the other side of its work data protection has really uh, become more and more what it focuses on so might a useful reform be to split those two functions and have a, a separate body uh, monitoring FOI compliance? So that is a very interesting question, and I'm becoming personally increasingly sympathetic to that, whereas, you know, 10 years ago I would have said no, and people used to say against that idea in the, that um, a lot of FOI requests might uh, sometimes, they could infringe on personal information and data protection, and you need one body to resolve those two clashing interests 
uh, internally. Otherwise, you have an information commissioner arguing with a data protection commissioner, and it won't be clear who's actually got legal force. And I was persuaded by that argument a few years ago, and I thought, better put them all in one organization, resolve the differences, the dilemmas, and you have a clear statement of what the sort of legal position is. But I think things have got so bad now, actually, in the ICO, that there is a strong case for taking the freedom of information part out of it and having a separate commissioner who will actually enforce the FOI law properly. Martin, widening the focus a little bit, do you think that the, in a way, the outsourcing of scrutiny to crowdfunded bodies like Open Democracy or the Good Law Project, it's a sign of democratic health? Or is it a sign that the more automatic checks and balances are not working effectively? Uh, I guess it's kind of both, really, um, Mm. because it's a sign of a healthy democratic society that you have organisations which challenge the government in the courts uh, and win. And that's a sign of a healthy civil society. And it's also the sign of a healthy judiciary. But um, the fact that the Open Democracy, Good Law Project, so on, are also are winning these cases does indicate that there are situations where the government isn't abiding by the law. And that obviously is a, is a problem. Um, but it, we do need these checks and balances, as any society does, in, in order to make sure that the government behaves itself properly. Is it fair to say that there's a slice of the national media that don't seem to care about this, either because they cheerlead for the government or because the belt tightening of the last few decades means they're happier copy and pasting press releases? But, you know, if The Telegraph discovered the expenses scandal today, would The Telegraph pursue it as doggedly as they did 10 years ago? I'm not sure. Okay, so I disagree with you about that. (laughs) I think they would. I think they would. And whenever there have been suggestions that the FOI law should be tightened up, made more restrictive, for example, this David Cameron 2012 or so wanted to do this, um, the conservative press was absolutely adamantly against it. Front pages of the Daily Mail about what a bad idea this was. And journalists and newspapers, really, of all political persuasions, actually, um, are behind FOI and would stand up for it and do stand up for it at times when it's threatened. Mm. But where are the stories from it? Um, Uh, I mean, in many of them, it seems to me that there's almost a tale where they grudgingly begin to publicise stories uncovered by the Times or the Financial Times or once they've become too big to ignore, if that makes sense, they go in the sort of small corner of the first, the front page somewhere. But there seems to be an unwillingness to go after the government. So I think that you do find stories in the, the Mail and the, the Telegraph that are based on FOI. You know, I'm sure you, you can find such stories in a, you know, in a wide range of newspapers. I think in this context also, Alex, I think it's very important uh, also to think about how the regional press and local papers mm. um, use FOI. And uh, they, a lot of them also there at that level use it very effectively as well uh, to get stories, local police forces, local councils, local hospital trusts, that kind of thing too. So 
you know, when we're talking about the press and FOI, we're not only talking about how it's used nationally, we're also talking how it's used at a regional and local mm. level, which is very important. Now, a distinct but related issue, why is there concern over the proposed Priti Patel reforms of the Official Secrets Act in this context? Yeah, so the government has issued a, a white paper uh, about planned reforms to the Official Secrets Act. And I think really there are two issues uh, of concern to quite a lot of journalists uh, about this. One is that uh, there's a proposal to change the law so that unauthorized disclosure of information, which is you know what the Official Secrets Act tries to prevent by officials, um, mm. that uh, at the moment for that to be a criminal offence as a crime, it would cause harm to national security, and uh, there's a suggestion to remove that. Uh, the second thing is the Act distinguishes between what it calls um, primary disclosure, which is the maybe the civil servant might be leaking information to a journalist, and then onward disclosure, which is what the journalist might then do with the information. Mm. Uh, and um, there's a suggestion there to remove that distinction. So it could also be the case that a journalist could be committing the offence uh, even without any uh, convincing evidence being provided that it does actually cause harm to national security. Yeah. And what I would say from my point of view is I think it's very important for these kind of um, legal provisions on re revealing information that it comes down in the end to whether there is actually a public interest in the information being released. There should be an overall public interest criterion. And if it's in the public interest for the information to be released, then that should override the existence of a criminal offence. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of other journalists would, would agree with that. The government also keeps saying that it plans to reform judicial review. And again, this is related. Is this real or is it a sort of sword of Damocles that has power only while it grazes, but but not if it not if it injures lethally? <laughs> do, 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 you, do you know what? Pretty much the same I mean, way they use the TV license review with the BBC as a sort of constant threat. Yeah, so you make me think, you know, if, if you're Damocles and this sword is dangling over your head and you're thinking, well, you know, is it just going to graze me? <laughs> <laughs> if it falls, is it just going to graze me or is it going to chop my head off? So um, there are fears about judicial review. And I referred earlier to David Cameron saying that FOI was one of the buggeration factors that fur up the workings of government. And another one he listed was actually judicial review in the same breath. So mm. I think it is regarded... Um, as a similar kind of thing, in a way, sometimes by central government. Uh, and so, um, I, yeah, I think they do regard um, judicial review as something to be worried about. But I, I kind of agree with you, actually, that they're more worried about it than actually they should be, because the number mm -hmm. of times when they actually lose the cases are very rare. Whereas, I, you know, I've noticed just in the way sometimes officials talk about the threat of judicial review, oh, this might happen, in cases where actually it's very, very unlikely that it's going to happen, and that really uh, the, the, there should be concern about the furring up of government. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think, it, you know, very often, as you say, it's more a graze than anything else from the hanging sword. Martin, a, a slightly more difficult question, I think. Is there a wider effect from lack of transparency and public trust? Or is it mainly just a, a, a journalist complaining point? Uh, 
I mean, what if people are not interested or would even rather not know? What if the populace is just happier not seeing how the sausage is made? <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, I think it's never supposed to be a good idea, is it, to see how the, the sausages are made, even your favourite sausages. <laughs> and, yeah, there may be, you know, members of the public who aren't very interested in this, and I'm sure it's the case most people have never put in a freedom of information request, probably never going to. Um, but it nevertheless, it informs the journalism that they read, the stuff that they see on the television here and the radio and so on, and it informs the public discussion that is taking place about important matters of public policy. So I think it's of general benefit to you know society as a whole, whether or not um, most of the public have a particularly deep desire to discover more facts under the Freedom of Information Act. Mm-hmm. Nula alone was the most recent judge in the Daniel Morgan case review to recommend a general duty of candour on public bodies. Is that a good idea? Can the trend be reversed? So I think that's a very um, interesting idea, actually. And the, uh, I mean, when you read the Daniel Morgan report, you see how concerned she and the panel were about really the obstruction that they were experiencing from the Metropolitan Police. And they obviously felt that the Metropolitan Police owed them a much bigger duty of candour than they actually got from the Met during the process that the panel went through. Um, and in a way, this is it's supposed to be analogous to the, thing, the, the situation in the National Health Service, where um, so if a doctor or nurse, whatever, makes a mistake... Um, Uh, or something goes wrong, a medical intervention goes wrong, there's a duty of candour to tell the patient or the patient's family about it, that there has been a mistake and you're going to try and rectify the situation. Uh, And they suggest, in effect, that a similar kind of thing should operate in the case of the police, Um, but they don't really go into detail about how it will work. Sorry, and it's notable because there's been another couple of inquiries recently, one into health matters that recommended a duty of candour on the uh, NHS, and and before that, the Hillsborough uh, also recommended uh, to the government that a duty of candour is introduced. Yes, so that duty does exist in in the National Health Service, has been a legal duty for a few years. And but as you say, absolutely, it was recommended in the Hillsborough case too. And I think the you know the question is, how do you create that in the uh, in the police service? It's not clear to me exactly what they are proposing. Are they proposing, for example, a murder investigation? goes wrong, as in the Daniel Morgan case, uh, and mm. that they, the police then go to the family and say, well, we made a big mess of this murder investigation into your murdered family member, um, and we need to tell you that. Uh, it, I mean, it's not clear to me that that's what they're suggesting. Maybe it is, and it would have interesting ramifications. Um, I, to be honest, I haven't really thought it through in terms of what all yeah, the it, you know, upside and downside would be. It's interesting because the, the moment I heard it in preparing for this interview, what I thought was that it's an attempt to recapture that initial aspiration that I was talking about, that presumption that when you're asked for information, your knee-jerk reaction should be to give it unless. Um, one final question, mm. Martin. Um, 
That review into the Daniel Morgan case described the the instinct and an effort to hush things up in order to protect the organization's reputation as institutional corruption, in that it introduces an illegitimate and dark incentive that corrupts the institution's loftier public goals. How is that different to what is going on at the Cabinet Office under Gove? Is there attempt to always have at the forefront the protection of the government's reputation? Does that not corrupt their loftier public duty on their website to ensure transparency and data going in the public domain? Well, I certainly think it undermines it. And uh, I think it's absolutely right to say within the Cabinet Office and many public authorities, there is this primacy being attached to defending the reputation of the organisation. And that was absolutely what the Metropolitan Police were trying to do, according to the Daniel Morgan Independent Panel Report. Mm. And that does have a corrosive and undermining effect in terms of the information that organisation should be releasing to the public in the public interest, whether or not it has a damaging impact on the reputation of the organisation itself. And sometimes that organisation... In the ben- for the benefit of the public, has to take the hit, so to speak, and accept that there's going to be criticism, and that criticism is valid and justified, and it needs to learn from it and move on and improve, and that's what this entire process should be about. Very good point to leave it on, Martin. I could talk to you for hours, geek to geek, but our time is at an end. Uh, thank you for your fight in this arena. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I've enjoyed it. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. This is Alex Andreu in the Bunker saying over and out. Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Yelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.